Well, up on the screen, you see that the, the title of our message is there. Yeah, I don't have it for me there for some reason. The title of the message is Jesus, I Want You to Know. And, and we're, we've been looking at Mark's gospel because Mark really wants us to get to know the real Jesus. Now, I told you last week that I'm not going to quit this series until Christmas comes. And so this is going to be the last of my messages on Mark until the new year. So next week we have the uh, Christmas concert by the choir, and so then Trinity is bringing a short devotional next week, and then the week after that uh, there'll be another message from Pastor Greg, and then I'll be back in, at the beginning of the new year with uh, some more studies through the book of Mark. But Mark wrote this book because he wants us to get to know the real Jesus. And so we're looking at this book together, and because what he realizes, I, mean, I said this each week, what he realizes, unless we know the real Jesus, we're not going to be able to be changed by Jesus. I mean, the change in life doesn't happen through our own power, it happens through God's power in us, and it's through us realizing who Jesus really is. And so that's what we've been looking at in this study. Now here's something that you might not know about Jesus, that more than an answer man, he was a question man. I mean, all of us understand that Jesus gives the answers to life. Why am I here? Where is my leg headed? Those kind of answers. But he also asked a lot of questions. In fact, he asked a lot of questions. Those who have kind of compiled all the questions Jesus asked in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus asked 307 questions. So when you read through the New Testament or the, the Gospel narratives, you're going to see Jesus asking a lot of questions. Sometimes they're rhetorical questions, aren't they? Questions like this. Uh, who by worrying can add one hour to his life? And the answer is obviously nobody can do that. And so who by worry can add one hour to his life? Or which of you who has a son would give him, when he asked for bread, would give him a stone? And which of you who, when he asked for a fish, would give him a snake? Nobody would do that. And so Jesus is asking that rhetorical question. He asks a question to the Pharisees who says, by the power of Satan you're casting out demons. Jesus says, how can Satan cast out Satan? I mean, it doesn't make any sense at all. And so Jesus would ask those kind of questions when he heard things that didn't make sense to him either. And so he's just trying to get us to understand the truth and reality that he has to share with us. Sometimes it's questions where it's just straightforward, simple questions that he wanted more information. Things like, uh, Peter, do you love me? Okay, he wanted Peter to answer that question. It came at the end of, of Jesus' uh, ministry with Peter. Do you love me, Peter? He asked the simple question, how many loaves of bread do you have there? Because remember last week when he fed the 4,000, he said, tell me how many loaves are there? And he, they said seven. But he was asking them, I want to know how many loaves of bread that we have before I multiply them to feed the 4,000 people here. Um, how about this one? Disciples are arguing on the, on the road as they're uh, traveling along, and they're arguing about who's the greatest, and Jesus asked this question, uh, what were you guys arguing about? I mean, who wants to answer that one? And no, none of them did. And so, I mean, those are these straightforward questions that Jesus sometimes asks. Sometimes the questions were probing and challenging, right? Uh, um, still, do you still not understand what I'm telling you? I mean, I mean, what's going on that you still don't understand? That He asked that of the disciples. Or, uh, don't you see that nothing that enters a, a man from the outside will make him unclean on the inside? Remember when his disciples were taking food and eating it without washing their hands properly? And he says, don't you understand that that's not what's going to make them unclean on the inside? Or why do you call me good to the rich young ruler? Why do you call me good, a good teacher? Or maybe this one, 
Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I command you? Our Lord asks a lot of questions, 307 in all, if you read through the New Testament Gospels. But maybe the most important question that he asked was the one that he asked in the disciples as they were making their way up to Caesarea Philippi. And the question that he asked them was simply this, who do you say that I am? Now, that question, who do you say that I am, comes at a really an interesting time and in an interesting place. I mean, Mark places it right after Jesus has healed the man in the town of Bethsaida. Remember that miracle of healing that he did for this blind man? That he touched his eyes and then Jesus asked him, what do you see? And the man said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And so he touched his eyes a second time. And then it says that he was able to see clearly. And, and what we took this miracle is, to, is not only was it a miracle of Jesus giving this man back his eyesight, but it was a miracle that became a parable that reminds us that sometimes what we need to have happen is that we need to have Jesus touch us a second time because we don't see things spiritually as clearly as we can or we should. And so it's required of Jesus to come a second time to us to help us see things as clearly as they should be seen. Uh, and, and so we talked about that last week, that we need a second touch from our Lord at times or a retouch from our Lord at times for us to see things as clearly because sometimes we're spiritually blind and we're spiritually uh, confused and we don't understand. Well, that's what we're going to see in the story today because in the story today, just as Jesus gave this blind man a second touch to help him see better, what we're going to find in the story today is that Jesus is going to touch Peter a second time or a, a, we could call a retouch, to help him see things that he was blind to. And so that's in the story today, and that's why I think Mark connects the story of this blind man and brings right behind it the story of, of Peter needing a second touch on his sight as well. So let's look at the story together. It's found in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 33. If you have your Bibles, feel free to follow along, but I'll put the, the verses up on the screen as well. Here's how it starts. Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? Now, it says that they went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and so they're making their journey up, which means that they're headed north, uh, and they're headed up to this place called Caesarea Philippi, okay? So the, it's the capital of, of Iturea. It's, it's the capital where Philip was the tetrarch of. Now, so once again, Jesus and his disciples are leaving the area of Galilee. They had been down in Bethsaida, and they're heading up towards uh, Caesarea Philippi. They're leaving, and he's really wanting to get away with them. They haven't, they, of all the, he's, he's wanting and wanting to get away with them. They haven't been able to, to be able to complete what he wants to have happen in the disciples as he's preparing them for what's going to happen about six months from now. Because six months from now, he's going into Jerusalem, and he's going to be arrested, and he's going to be beaten, and he's going to be crucified, so he can rise again on the third day. And he wants them to understand what's going to happen in the, in the months ahead, and so that they're prepared for that. And he hasn't come to the completion where he feels that he's satisfied with them understanding that. So he's taking them away again, and he's bringing them up to an area where he knows that the crowd won't go with him so he can be alone with his disciples. And so here they are, they're making their way up to Caesarea Philippi. Let me put a, up on the screen a map just so you see what's going on here. 
It, it, right by the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, you see those towns, Chorazin, uh, uh, Bethsaida, and the other was Capernaum. Capernaum was where Jesus had based his ministry out of. So that's where a lot of the ministry takes place. But he's getting away from that, and he'll travel. Now he's going to travel up 25 miles up to this region called uh, Caesarea Philippi. And it's in that et Eteria is the region. And, he, and it's right, real close. You actually see Mount Hermon right there because it's right on the, the lower edges of that mountain uh, range that he is going to be with the disciples. So the valley happens right there where Caesarea Philippi is. And, and so the, the mountains come right down to that valley, and that's where Jesus is at this point. So he's making his way up there, 25 miles to the north. That city was built by Herod the Great. Um, when he was in power, he wanted to build a city in honor of uh, the emperor, Caesar Augustus, so he built the city. When he died, his son Philip decided, I want to take my name onto the city as well, and so he made it uh, kind of the capital area of that region, and he uh, included Philippi as Philip. He was the tetrarch, so he included his name, and so it became known as Caesarea Philippi. Now, the thing about Caesarea Philippi is that it was an area that was known for pagan worship. A lot of temples, a lot of pagan worship going on in that area. In fact, at the base of the, of, of the mountain range, Mount Hermon, uh, there's a cliff that's there. I've never been there. Pastor Trinity's been there, so he could explain this better. But there's a base of this cliff. There's a, a number of temples that have been built at, uh, at the face of this cliff to a, a variety of different gods that they worship, all kinds of gods that they worship. And the reason they were built, built at the foot of this cliff, part of the reason why is because in that cliff there was a big cave, and of the cave it was understood to be the gateway to the underworld. And so this is a gate, the gate to which the, the gods and the, and the uh, underworld beings would come and go. So that's why it's built there. Here's what it would look like, or here's what it looks like today. So you can actually go see that, and you can, can you go in the cave itself? You can actually go, and I know there's a little sign in front of the cave that describes what that cave is all about, but it's a big cave in, in, in front of that, of that cliff right there. And, and it was the cave that was the cave of Pan, uh, mythology, Greek mythology tells us that the god Pan was a god that had the, the lower, tor lower torso of a goat, the upper torso of a, of a man, and, then, and it went around playing a flute called the Pan flute. And so you think it would be the god of music, but it's really the god of shepherds. So it would be the god who was over the shepherds. And one of the things that we know is that uh, the Pan liked to as the God loved to scare the daylights out of shepherds. I mean, so he's not a God that you really look to have around you. He was a God that you kind of feared and you try to make happy because uh, he would make you panic, and we get the name, the word panic from him. And so he would go and he would, uh, you know, bring great fear to the shepherds who were in the world at that time. He was a primary God, though, located there. So um, he was the main God who was there. If you look at that picture in the, the center temple, that's where I believe that the, the main uh, entry to that cave was, and that's where many of the gods would be going and coming out of, because behind that temple was the cave, and it was, as I said, the cave to Pam and Pan, and in the back of the temple, as I read about it, there's a great precipice that's there, and way down below that, there's water that they can hear down below, but they can't reach the bottom of the water. The, the, it goes so deep that 
uh, as, as they would try to figure out how deep the water went, they never get, came to the bottom. And so the assumption that is that it went all the way down to the underworld because the underworld was in the center of the earth. Uh, the abyss, uh, when the Bible talks about the abyss being in the center of the earth. So there, the understanding is that's where hell was, that's where Haiti was. It was down in the center of the earth. And so all I'm saying is against this backdrop, and that was the gate to it, that, that, that um, cave was the gate to it. I'll, what I'm saying is this, against the backdrop of this, this world of their gods and how to get to their gods and where their gods come from, Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am or who do men say that I am? And here's what the answer is that the disciples give him. They told him, some say you're John the Baptist, and of course they would tell that because that's how Herod uh, believed about Jesus, uh, or, yeah, uh, Jesus because they thought after he beheaded John the Baptist, Herod thought that Jesus had become the reincarnation of John the Baptist. So some believed that, that he was John the Baptist come back to life. Others said that he's Elijah because, again, there's an Old Testament prophecy in the book of Malachi, chapter 4, that talks about the fact that before the Messiah returns, Elijah will come, and some people think that he's the Elijah who's going to come before the return of the Messiah. Others will say that he's the prophet, and so there's some who believe that the prophets would show up. But then Jesus asked them this question. So that's the answer the disciples give. But then Jesus asked them the question, but who do you say that I am? Now, that, that's the most important question we can be faced with, isn't it, in life? That is the most important question that you and I will be faced with in life. Who do you say that Jesus is? And it's a personal question. Who do you say that I am? It's not who does your mom and dad say that I am. Who does your friend say that I am? Who do other people that you know say that I am? I mean, that's not going to help us when it comes to Jesus Christ because Jesus wants us to be able to know who he is. And so the question he's really asking, and it actually becomes kind of a, the watershed of, of the whole gospel of 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 Mark, because he's, the first part of the gospel is leading up to this question. The second part is taking that, that question and leading down to the things that Jesus is going to do because he is the Christ. And so everything is leading to this one primary question in the gospel of Mark. Who do you say that I am? And what do they say? Peter answered him and said, you are the Christ. Now that's really probably for Mark, uh, that's enough to be said because he doesn't expound on it anymore. But if you jump to Matthew's gospel in Matthew chapter 16, Matthew has Jesus say a little bit more that I think is really helpful for us to understand. Because Matthew says this, here's what Jesus says, Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Which means, see, that the only way that we're going to have the right knowledge of who Jesus is, if his knowledge is given to us by God the Father. That's what he's saying. That's what he's meaning. In other words, you and I will never see Jesus as he really is unless God opens our eyes to who he is. So it takes a spiritual unveiling of our eyes to be able to, for us to know who Jesus Christ is. 
See, and really, what, that's one of the things that happens at salvation. If you're a believer today, if you're a follower of Jesus today, I, I, my hunch is that most of you can go back and remember that event of your conversion when you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, and you can remember how it's like your eyes opened, and your understanding opened, and you began to see Jesus as a way you never saw before you surrendered your life to him. And it made such a big difference in your life because now all of a sudden you see that Jesus is not just somebody there, but he's somebody who's here. And he's not somebody that you can just know about in a simple way, but it's somebody that you want to know even better and you want to give your life to serving. I mean, all of a sudden your eyes open to the spiritual reality around you that you hadn't seen before. And that's because God reveals himself and his son to us. So if we come to know Jesus, it's not a work on our part, it's a work on God's part. And that's all that, that uh, is being said here. That Jesus is telling Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, for you to be able to call me the son of the living God, the Messiah, the Christ, but my Father in heaven has given this to you. You know, Paul tells us something similar to that, doesn't he? Paul say this in, in 1 Corinthians 2. And this is what scripture means when they say. This is what the scriptures mean when they say. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has, has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. But it was to us that God revealed these things by his spirit. It was to us that God opened our eyes, unstopped our ears, gave us understanding in our heart so that we could come to understand what God had prepared for us through Jesus Christ. See, you cannot understand with your mind, you cannot see with your heart, you cannot see with your eyes what God has prepared until you become a follower of Jesus Christ. So if you're here today and you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, you know that what? There's things that you just will not understand until you come to the point where you say, Jesus, I, I'm going I'm to surrender my life to you, be my Savior, be my Lord, and when you surrender your life and your heart before him, all of a sudden he opens a realm of reality for you to see that otherwise is shut off to you because that's how God works. We come to know his son and then we come to know his son better after we know his son as the savior and Lord of our lives. And so that's what's going on here. And so Peter says to him, you know, um, Lord, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you got it, Peter, but it's not from you. It's from my Father. Now, Jesus says some really fascinating things. Based on that confession that, G that Peter has just made, that you are the Son, the, the, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, then he goes on to say this again, Mark's, or Matthew's Gospel, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, there's where the, the gates of hell come in, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against you. Okay? You have to get what Jesus is saying here. You are Peter, the little rock, and on the big rock, the big rock of, of your confession, that's what I'm going to build my believing fellowship community upon. Not church like we know it, where it's a church building. You're not going to build a church building, but he's going to build a, a, a it's actually, the word is actually just an assembly. It's just a, a, a large grouping of people. And so it's on the rock of this confession, I'm going to build an assembly of people who will follow me. And the good news is the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against you.
the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against you. You know what is understood in that day? When, when, when winter would come, the gods would go back down into the, the cave and go down to the underworld during the winter months. In the summer months, they would all come forth. And they would come forth in the spring. And they would come forth in their power. And what Jesus says is that this gate here, this gate, as those, as those demonic powers come forth, will not be able to stand against you, will not be able to prevail against you. You see, all that happened because Peter recognized that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. So he saw that. God gave that to him. Jesus, it's almost as if his eyes were touched and he saw things. And we could ask him, Peter, what do you see? And he says, I see you, Jesus, as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus says back to him, you're right. That was given to you by my Father. But you know what? What we're going to find out is before the story is done, Peter needs a retouch so that he sees Jesus more clearly. He sees something about Jesus, but it's not the complete picture of Jesus. And so what we have in the story is he's going to be given the opportunity to see Jesus even more clearly. Here's why I say that. Look at, look at verse 31 of Mark. And he began to teach his disciples... Okay, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days to rise again. And then Mark says, and he said this plainly. In other words, Jesus is trying to make this as clear as he possibly can to the disciples so that they can understand what his mission is all about. So he's trying to make it as clear as he possibly can. And it's to that that Peter will say, as he hears Jesus say that, trying to make it as plain as possible, it's to that that Jesus will say back to Jesus. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He'll say to Jesus, I mean, that's not going to happen. He began to rebuke him. In fact, that's how Matthew describes it. Matthew gives us this. Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him, began to disagree with him. That's what it's saying. He tried to try to correct him. Jesus, let me give you a correction here. Uh, this is not going to happen. And so it says... Far be it from you. I mean, don't ever think about that happening. That is not what's going to take place. This shall never happen to you. Okay? And so that's the moment. Here Jesus says, this is what's going to happen to me. And Peter says, no, that's not going to happen to you. That's not going to be, you're not going to be killed. You're not going to be uh, crucified. What does Peter need in that moment? Right? What does he need? He needs Jesus to open his eyes again. He needs the second touch or the third touch or however, whatever touch it is for him. But he needs Jesus to come and retouch his eyes so that he doesn't just see something about Jesus as you're the Messiah, but he sees Jesus as the Messiah who came to suffer and die so that he could rise again on the third day and provide salvation for everybody who's willing to follow. That's what he needed to see. And that's what Jesus gave him. And that's why Jesus says to him at that point, get behind me, Satan, for what you're thinking, 
It's not what's mindful, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of man. What you're thinking is not coming from God. You got it from God at one point. You're not getting it from God now. And, and so get behind me, because these are not the things of God. These are the things of men. Peter needed a retouch. And that's really, this is the point of my message today is help us understand that you and I will at times need God to give us more truth because we, we can see things, but we don't see them clearly. You know, Peter's going to get touched a number of times before we're done hearing him giving his life uh, examples in, in the scriptures. We're going to see Jesus come to him at the, at, on the seashore because Peter's gone back to uh, his... Uh, fishing boat to fish and Jesus comes and he'll say Peter do you love me uh, then care for my sheep and he's going to remind him that you know what I called you to be the one who would bring people into the kingdom to shepherd my sheep and you, you I don't want you to end doing that and he retouches his eyes again to help him see this is the call on your life. Feed my sheep if you love me. We'll see again when uh, Peter sees a, a vision of the sheep with unclean animals on it. And, and God says to him, take and eat. These are okay things to eat. And Peter says, God forbid, I'm not going to do that. These things have always been unclean. I'm not about to eat them now. And what he needed was to have his eyes opened again. And he gets a retouch that says, God says, what I've declared to be clean is clean. So Peter, accept what I've said is clean. And remember how he will be at, in Galatia, the story of Galatians where he's with some Gentiles having fellowship with them. And some men come from Jerusalem representing the body of believers under James there. And they are disagreeing with Peter about fellowshipping with uh, men who are Gentiles and eating with them in their homes. And, and Peter decides, well, I don't want to be offensive to them, so I'm going to back out, and I'm not going to eat with these people I've been eating with. I'm not going to share a table with them. And Paul says, I confronted him to his face because Peter was wrong. And I opened the scriptures to him to see that it was okay for him to have fellowship with these believers. That there's no barrier between Gentile and Jew any longer. He needed a retouch again. And it just reminds me that even though you and I have been given a grace of God, there are times when we need to have God come, right? And he needs to be the one, we need to allow him to touch our eyes again so that what we can't see, we can see. And what we are having trouble hearing, we can now hear. And what we're having difficulty perceiving, we can now understand. And what we have a heart that's opposed to, we can now accept. That's what the story is about, I think. Part of it. I mean, there's other things in the story. But part of it is that we have a God who gives us a second touch to help us understand more clearly the, the truths of, of his word and the truths of his heart so that we will have our spiritual blindness removed from our eyes. Fact of the matter is, you and I are a body of believers, and the gates of hell will not stand against us. And so when Satan comes and tries to deceive us, 
what's happening is that Jesus comes and he removes those blinders and gives us the ability to see things as they really are. None of us have 20-20 vision, do we, when it comes to spiritual matters? We're always on the process of receiving more and more truth from our Lord to the point where we come to understand all truth someday. But that's the gift that he gives us as described here. See, this is why, you know, at the beginning of the message or the beginning of the service, I began with Matthew 24, 16, or 4, 16, and the people living in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned on them. That's what Jesus comes to do. So wherever you are today, Whatever that darkness is maybe in your life, whether you're aware of darkness or not, there can be times when you need to have Jesus Christ open your eyes to the light of who he is and what he's about so that we can grow in our glorious understanding of who Jesus Christ is and what he came to do. I hope you understand that. Let's pray. Father, we want to just, again, invite you to come. And Father, as David said, search my heart, O Lord, and know my thoughts, and see if there be anything in me that is not pleasing to you, and, and, and then correct it, pretty much is what he said, Father. Uh, we pray the same thing. Continue bring us on the process where we, our eyes are open more and more and more to the reality of who your son is, what he came to do, so that we can have a part in the ministry and the mission that he's called us to share with him. So, Father, again, thank you for being a God who opens our eyes with a second touch that we sometimes need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me as we close in song. Light of the world, you step down into darkness. 